You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Greetings and welcome to Domecast, the news and observer politics podcast. I'm Don Vaughn, here with Julian Shenbarrow, Lucille Sherman, Daniel Battaglia, and Colin Campbell. And today's episode, we're going to talk about masks, the statewide mask mandate, those who wear them, those that don't, what the law, what the enforcement is, uh, where things stand. And this is kind of the news factor in this is that we found out, I guess, less than a week ago, that a lobbyist who had been at the building uh, tested uh, positive for coronavirus and had met with some other lawmakers. And so those of us that spent a lot of time at the building the past month or more than a month, um, obviously were uh, especially interested in this. Um, we first heard about this, I think it was Lucille or Danielle, one of you are the ones that first got wind of it, right? I feel like it was Will. Was it Will or Jordan? It okay. was Jim Morrill um, at the Jim. server. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he let us know that um, he had heard about it and then Danielle and I started sort of working to confirm it. It's really interesting given, you know, so many people um, in the General Assembly have not been wearing masks. Um, and also, as a result of this news, we are not recording um, Domecast in the newsroom. <laughs> We're recording it on Zoom far away from each other because <laughs> I don't think any of us have gotten our test results back. They told me eight day wait and I'm on day eight and I still don't have it. I think I went first, right? Uh, yeah. Like as soon as we could get uh, appointments and everything. Um, those of you that are listening and have had them, you know that you can't always get it as quickly as you want. Um, but compared to other states, like you can get them pretty quickly and your results pretty quickly and the criteria to get testing compared to um, our neighbor state, Virginia, for example, um, and I believe insurance covers, um, covers it for everybody, or even if you don't have insurance. So, um, test, yeah, maybe Danielle is saying it, that's iffy. Um, but we are as a state at a better place than we were when, what well, we had press conferences months ago and we were asking Dr. Cohen, like, you know, when are there going to be enough tests and they didn't even have places to do it. So, um, like everything else with coronavirus, um, there's been progress, even though, you know, some things have, have fallen behind. But that day also when we found out about it, uh, there was something unrelated to coronavirus. So I was talking to um, Senators Trotary and Nickel and I said, you know, do you all know about this uh, lobbyist? And they said, what? Um, so they, the lawmakers who work in the building, much less those that um, also work in the building um, covering it, like us and other people, um, were not informed. Um, just those that had direct contact. Um, yeah, I don't know about you, Lucille, but I felt like I was telling more people about it than actually knew about it when I was asking questions. Yeah, and I reached out to a lot of lobbyists I know or have cell phone numbers for personally to just try and see if I could get any indicator of who it was. And I was informing most of the lobbyists I know um, that someone had tested positive too. And I was yeah, wonder if this would even have been announced ever at all had we not gotten a tip and confirmed it with the powers that be. I mean, a lot of public places are very good about notifying people who might have been there that they might have been exposed, but this seems like uh, they just didn't want to tell people until they were directly asked uh, if it was the case. Well, that's what reporters are good for, right? <laughs> to ask those questions and get people uh, to tell us things and hold them accountable. And 
a lot of like our questions and others were, you know, okay, there's a person that, um, you know, I mean, honestly, I fear it's more than one person that's been in that building um, that, that would test uh, positive for coronavirus. And so there's a risk factor in, in everything. Um, but part of that risk factor is whether or not you're wearing a mask and knowing if somebody was wearing a mask or not. Um, and Lucille, you did a story a while ago now about, um, about lawmakers themselves wearing masks or not, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I published that story on June 16th, um, but I started sending out the survey in May sometime um, asking lawmakers if they wear a mask or face covering, and if so, why? If not, why not? Um, and I did not get a ton of response on that survey. I think my latest count was 60, more than 60 lawmakers um, responded to the survey. Um, 51 of them were Democrats, 12 were Republicans. So not the world's greatest sample size, um, but it was, you know, self-report and we felt like it was the most fair and accurate way to sort of get a sense of who is wearing a mask. Um, because even if you're, you know, on the um, House or Senate floor and you're looking at who's wearing masks and who isn't, maybe sometimes people will be wearing a mask on the House floor and not elsewhere or vice versa. So that's why we did the survey and we, every single person that answered said they do wear a mask. Um, so I thought that was really interesting and most people said, you know, I do it to protect others. I do it because that's, um, the public health guidance, um, different things like that. I will say what I have seen with my own eyes, which I can't quantify, um, is that a lot of people do wear masks on occasion, but sometimes they're wearing them around their necks or they take them off while they're speaking, particularly legislators even if they're in small committee rooms. So it's really kind of hard to know how many people are wearing a mask and how often, um, but everyone I surveyed said they do wear a mask at least at some point when they're in a legislative building. I think once I saw somebody describe it where you pull it down, wear it at your chin as the Abe Lincoln, that's always what I think of with, with how to wear a mask. It doesn't protect you if it's down there. Maybe yeah. it's a, a convenient storage location until you put it back over your mouth and nose, I guess. I will also say I, I've been, a lot of people have asked me, is it split along party lines? Who wears a mask and who doesn't? And while I'm tempted to say yes, I also have never felt comfortable saying it's split along party lines totally because Democrats who do wear masks take them off when they're talking, which really defeats the whole purpose of wearing a mask to begin with. You're supposed to sort of prevent um, spray <laughs> um, from getting places, which is gr a gross image. But I mean, a lot of people on the Senate floor, on the House floor, in small committee rooms take their mask off when they're talking. Can, can um, I just insert the say it, don't spray it? Say it, don't spray it, <laughs> which I have said more times this session than I can count. Um, that, and especially when they're talking on the floor, they'll take them off, which when you're talking the same way, you know, singing other things, or you're more likely, people could hear you better, but if you're in range of other people, right, you're, you're more likely to, I can't remember what gross word it is to like say it. <laughs> the equivalent of spraying when when you talk or all those droplets I think coming up. It, yeah, respiratory droplets. I think Anthony Fauci says secretions, which that one <laughs> so really gross. 
grosses me out. Uh, sorry to bring that up. But anyway, yeah, I think it's important to note, like, it's kind of hard. I know people have reached out to me and have said, well, just report who's not wearing a mask. But there are so many different times that one person is wearing a mask and one person isn't. So it's really kind of hard to say, you know. Yeah, I mean, we've interviewed Senate leader Phil Berger several times for the last few weeks. And sometimes he has a mask on when he's doing a press gaggle with a group of reporters. Sometimes he doesn't. Once he had it in his hand, uh, he takes it off when he gets the lectern. So you can't really put people in one category or another a lot of the time because there's, it's kind of a sometimes thing for a lot of people in the legislative building. I think people take them off when they're by themselves and or don't necessarily remember to put it back on immediately. I think, I think that's part of it too. And I think in just fairness, this, we all have probably done that once or twice in that building. Sure. Yeah, because you're not paying attention or you're, you're like, oh, I'm away from everyone. And, and then you forget, you know, um, if you don't have it at, at a blink in uh, location on your chin. So all of this, Lucille, your story was before it was a state mandate even. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, and, and some people didn't like, um, as I recall, clearly, uh, Representative Keith Kidwell on the House floor saying, I'm not wearing a mask, I don't care what the governor says. Um, so some people aren't going to wear it regardless of anything. And uh, Lieutenant Governor Forrest had some comments about mask wearing this, this weekend. And uh, Julian, you've been looking into some of that a little bit and also mask enforcement. So what, um, what, what should people be aware of with, with enforcement and everything else and, and why people should or, or should wear masks or not? Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things with enforcement, I mean, a lot of the headlines focused around uh, some of the sheriffs who kind of, you know, were, were coming out against the mandate. Um, you know, there is Sampson County, Jimmy Thornton, um, he's the sheriff there, and, and he called the mandate unconstitutional in a Facebook post, and you had instances like that. Um, but one of the things that I found when speaking to a lot of local county sheriffs was, you know, there's, there's a lot of them who don't feel like they are uh, not in compliance with the order by choosing not to enforce it, at least with the general public. Um, you know, it, it seems that their understanding is, and, and from what I can tell from the way that the law is written, it, it, it seems like they're not really supposed to be going up to people in public who aren't wearing masks and questioning them about that or, or asking, you know, um, why they're choosing not to wear a mask. Um, it does say that you can have medical reasons to be exempt from it and that you shouldn't have to present any proof of that. Um, so it, it really seems with enforcement, it comes down to businesses and, and uh, stores and if they're going to um, you know, enforce it and ask somebody to leave who's not wearing a mask or, or ask someone to kind of go about their business in a different way, um, that is when you can kind of call in the sheriff and call in the officers to come in and enforce it. So that really puts the burden of enforcement on on business owners, right? Or, or who's going to call or not? It, it seems that way. And it, and it seems that's the way that um, some of the county sheriffs, at least from what I've been talking to, are, are kind of interpreting it and seeing it. And what have you, um, what have you learned as far as what the kind of impact that mask wearing can have. Yeah, well, I've been speaking to a lot of health experts and I, I think it's not really a surprise. It's something that we've seen a lot in the news lately that it is something that has been at least seen so far to have a, a pretty big impact in terms of the spread of the virus. Um, so it's not really something necessarily that you're wearing to protect yourself, though there's no evidence that it doesn't protect you as well. It's, it's kind of unclear right now on the impact it has for you, um, but it is seen as something that's kind of a, a community safeguard in a way that you are wearing it because you could be asymptomatic and you could not realize that you have the virus and that you're protecting other people because it is preventing you from spraying per se when you talk and uh, making sure that any germs that you might be kind of letting out are not getting into other people. And so that seems to be 
uh, generally understood by a lot of uh, health experts at the time and, and experts in viruses and how they spread. Um, obviously, over the weekend, we had Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest saying, um, although his, his statement was a little bit confusing, talking about kind of the history of masks and viruses and how there has been a bunch of studies that have shown that they are not effective at preventing the spread of viruses and that they've never been used before, um, which has been kind of uh, disputed by some health experts is one way of putting it. And, and they've been a little bit confused at what he's been referring to and which studies he's been talking about, but um, their statement has been essentially wear a mask because it does help. Speaking of no mask gathering, uh, that Dan Forrest uh, fundraiser out in the Henderson County area, I think over the weekend at some sort of apple barn, um, the pictures I saw of that, I think I counted in a group of maybe a hundred people, four or five people wearing masks, even though uh, someone pointed out on Twitter that if you go to Dan Forrest uh, campaign uh, merch store, uh, you can in fact buy a Dan Forrest for governor face mask, uh, even though uh, Forrest himself evidently does not believe that uh, they're terribly effective. I like that you said Apple Barn. <laughs> There's actually a store in uh, southwestern Virginia uh, called Apple Barn. It has um, I don't think they actually sell apples, but it's uh, it's cool like country stuff. And I have a few things from Apple Barn. I think it was called like apples and such or something to that effect. So we uh, we've been looking at the general statute to find out who is in charge of whether or not you wear uh, wear masks. And there's the we don't know if this is the exact one that they're using, but there's uh, so general statute 120-32.1 use and maintenance of buildings and grounds. And then um, let's see, we've got some other parts of, of just like who's in charge of the building itself. And it sort of outlines what is the, the legislative services officer, which is Paul Coble, um, is um, in charge of what they they're able to do, what the police are able to do. But clearly, I think we, we could all say, and if you guys have want to weigh in also that um, any sort of not wearing masks in the building is definitely not enforced by, by anyone. Would you guys say that? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a mask optional autonomous zone in the middle of Raleigh, even though it was Raleigh's ban and now it's the state's, or Raleigh's mandate, now it's the state's mandate. Um, certainly there's no compulsion to wear masks, no one telling you to wear a mask if you don't have one in that building. Um, and uh, I think House Speaker Tim Moore told me a few weeks ago that he believes it's a separation of powers issue that uh, executive orders from the governor don't apply in the legislative building. And I guess sort of related to that law that you were talking about, that essentially that one block area of downtown Raleigh is controlled by the legislative service officer, Paul Coble, and Paul Coble by himself. So, you know, even though he hasn't been mayor of Raleigh since the 90s, he's the mayor of that one block. Yeah, and the um, language that Don is talking about seems, it does indicate that the legislative building can make its own rules and people have to follow those rules. But what's unclear to me is if the lack of requirement for masks in the building falls under um, that particular um, piece of the law, because it just says generally, like, we make these rules, people have to follow these rules, but can they make people not follow state mandates? It's unclear. In Lucille's camp on that, I feel like it's way too vague to say for sure this is why they have that autonomy. I mean, anytime the government is vague, it's probably intentional, right? <laughs> Since they're like so in the weeds on everything. There's another interesting uh, statute that I found <laughs> that I was excited to look at um, on because this is what the kind of thing that we think is fun. 
Um, it's evacuation of legislative buildings and grounds. And obviously, like Merriam Mask is not the same as evacuation, but that's a separate. It's 102-32.1A. And it's that the chief of the General Assembly police or the chief's designee um, can decide through the chief's opinion or designee um, about if there's a reason to evacuate the building. I and mean, this follows things like it says fire, bomb, bomb threats, any other emergency or potentially hazardous conditions, including both the ordering control of the evacuation of those buildings and grounds. So that's evacuation specific, but it is also about hazards and safety. So there's probably a little bit of leeway on, on what they want to do. Um, so if any of you all are listening to this, we'll, you'll probably be hearing more from us, pushing you on it, or maybe that's something that, um, that you could help us seek clear, uh, clarity on, which is um, a fun government phrase. So before- yeah, yeah. Fantasy politics wise, um, it seems like the vagueness here is ripe for a standard entity politics lawsuit. So could we see a Cooper v. Berger over whether you have to wear masks in that building? I kind of doubt it, but it would be an interesting uh, legal challenge. Yes, certainly uh, those of us that spend a lot of time in there um, uh, want to figure out who, uh, who is in charge of what and how. Um, we do know that a letter from you know, the Senate Democratic Caucus will change some policy, right? Because they sent that letter out that they were upset that the temperature checks had stopped. Um, and then those restarted again, and that was from um, a caucus letter, so. Security told me I'm not allowed in the building because it was my article that got the temperature checks back, according to them. I, I think they were probably joking. <laughs> I know, I got that. <laughs> Just to make sure for uh, for clarity reasons, for our listeners to know, <laughs> they were I have a dry sense of humor. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, so. I am allowed in the building. They gave me my pretty sticker while laughing at me. All right, so let's look at who who's our winner of the headliner of the week last week. I'll pull it up here. Um, mine was Tillman. You guys did not want Tillman, although I did come in second. It was public record restriction one. Who uh, was that? Yours, Lucille or Dino? Yeah, that was me. I forgot I did that <laughs> uh, last time and was going to make that my headliner this week. So I'm glad I won because I don't have a headliner of the week. Well, you have to sit it out anyway. You got it with 53% um, of the vote, um, followed by Senator Tillman, mine with 27, and then late night ramblings and delivery robots with 10%. Although, Julian, I will say I was fascinated about all the delivery robot stuff and thinking about what that would look like if um, one of those came down the street. And I mean, can you imagine what dogs, like what the dogs freak out? Yeah, I'm, totally, no, I, I'm freaked out. <laughs> you know, I was fascinated by it too. And, and I will take top four for my first attempt. At <laughs> there you go, top four. Top four. Uh, well, actually tied for third, really. So you came in, you know, third. So. Even uh, better. Julian, fun fact, I got away with um, re-upping a headliner of the week a couple weeks ago. So I've been repeating some of my headliners of the week and I've gotten away with it. So, you know, you need to go to that. You can. Okay. Well, we all, we all plot our headliners. Uh, we'll be back in a second with headliner of the week. Okay. And here we go with headliner of the week. Um, I'm gonna go first. We're recording this on Monday, July 6th, which is the birthday of Bojangles in North Carolina history. I'm very excited. Best Biscuits will not entertain any discussion of anything other than Bojangles Biscuits are the best biscuits. So that's my headliner, Bojangles Anniversary Biscuits. 
Well, it seems very biased that you're taking a side, but that's fine. Literally, our headliner is what we think should be the best. And there's no side with Biscuits. It's just Bojangles. <laughs> that's just what it is. Biscuitville is great overall, but if we're talking just Biscuits, the answer is clear. It's bow time. All right, Julian, who's your headliner? I, I wish I could say it was Bojangles being delivered by robots, but we're not quite there yet. Um, so I'll go with one that's probably a little bit less fun to, to the people. But um, there was an Elon poll, this, I think, last week uh, that came out. And, and since we're talking about masks, a lot of that poll was devoted to finding out how people in North Carolina are thinking about um, some of these restrictions that have been put in place because of the coronavirus. And so uh, what the poll found actually was is pretty overwhelming support for a lot of the restrictions. Uh, that are being put into place. Um, something, gosh, I, I don't remember the exact percentages, but I, I believe over 70% um, of people who responded to the poll either said that the state's response had been about right or not restrictive enough, but but very small minority of people were saying that it was too restrictive. Um, and so even, even within both parties kind of agreeing about that. Um, so kind of a, a interesting poll to look at. There's a lot of different things that they uh, we're asking about and finding information about, but that's some interesting stuff there. So it's a good one to check out. All right, Danielle, you're up next. I feel like I should preface this with I'm not condoning or, wait, am I saying that right? I'm not against or for what I'm about to say. Don't take this as taking sides, but I do appreciate that we have people out protesting a public records bill right now because who cares about public records besides journalists? And there's been people camped out since last Monday at the governor's mansion. And again, I'm not saying the protest is right or wrong. I'm just saying the fact that people are fighting for public records is great to me. All right, Colin. I'm going with illicit parades. Um, if you'll recall from a couple weeks ago, we had the July 4th legislation uh, vetoed by the governor that uh, legislators wanted to make it uh, definitely legal to hold July 4th parades and fireworks uh, celebrations. The governor vetoed that bill, but he also didn't issue any specific directives ahead of the 4th that I'm aware of that was specific to parades um, and fireworks, but we still do have an executive order that says outdoor gatherings are limited to 25 or fewer people, and it appears that at least a few towns in North Carolina went ahead with the parade and probably had at least 25 people there, probably more, uh, including the town of Bellhaven in uh, Beaufort County. Uh, which is where state rep Keith Kidwell was posting pictures of his uh, pickup truck and uh, boat uh, parade float for the 4th of July. Um, so obviously at least a few lawmakers in addition to towns decided that uh, they were not going to give up their 4th of July parades for any social distancing rules and we're going to have a possibly illegal parade uh, to celebrate the 4th. I just wanted to note that there's a headliner that is not about parade that is about parades that was not from me, so I'm not the only one <laughs> that pitches parade I did it for you, <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm Don Vaughn for Julian Shinbero, Lucille Sherman, Danielle Battaglia, and Colin Campbell. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.